The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the real start of the Eightfold Path program, actually at the beginning of the path here. I want to introduce Liz Powell, who's one of the three co-teachers. Um, she can say a little bit about welcome, and maybe she can explain where's our still missing dear friend, Rooney. Okay, I will do that. Um, so is everybody able to hear okay? Uh, if at any, my voice tends to get really low, so if at any time uh, you can't hear me, just raise your hand or <laughs> do that. So um, I'm Liz Powell, and I've been practicing here since 2004, and I really love this program. I, I can't remember how many years I've been involved in it, um, maybe the last three or four, uh, but it and other intensive programs like this have really helped me deepen in the practice and you know, bring it into my daily life more. And um, every program I've ever done like this has been very rewarding. And it's really rewarding to go through this path, Eightfold Path, again and again. Every time I pick up the books and read, every time I practice it, I'm like, was that in there last time? <laughs> that sounds totally new. So it's very beneficial. And I'm delighted to be here to engage in this with you. So every, every day, hopefully, we'll be learning new things. Bruni um, Davila, our third uh, co-facilitator, um, is right now, she, she left for Puerto Rico because she's originally from Puerto Rico and her family lives there. And so um, maybe we can just, in your thoughts, uh, send some metta, some hopes for safety and health to her and the people of Puerto Rico that she's gone to help. So we'll, we'll miss her for a few months here, not just because of that, but also because she's part of the IMS IRC teacher training program and she's gonna be at um, the Insight Meditation Society doing a long uh, retreat. So we're gonna miss her for a few months, but you know, she's a wonderful co-facilitator and I think you'll enjoy her when she rejoins us, hopefully in January. Okay, so let's, uh, we were just sitting, but let's sit some more. Always good. <laughs> so the topic today is right view, which has a lot to do with keeping ease versus stress in mind. So let's just bear that in mind as we find a posture that feels easeful, but supportive and balanced. I find it helpful to just play a little bit with like uh, the zoom lens quality of attention in the beginning of a sitting maybe and just before you rush right into the breath or something just take a big whole body, whole mind check of how am I, how it's going on right now is there some stress or tension, is there a sense of ease Just acknowledging what's happening, what, what's, what's it like right now for you. And simply bringing awareness and acknowledgement to something often gives a little space around it where it can 
exist in the way it needs to exist and we can feel a little bit of freedom around it. You might just let your attention come to settle where your seat contacts your chair or cushion. Notice what it feels like to be in your body instead of in your thoughts, at least partly. And maybe it comes to your attention that breathing is happening, that very trustworthy ongoing process of the body expanding to take in air and relaxing letting it out just notice what's your relationship to your breathing right now are you feeling at ease with it something in it some way that you could adjust a little bit or relax a little bit more so that you have the sense of just allowing your body to breathe and being aware of what that feels like. You could take a deep breath or two if that feels helpful or just settle into it if you're ready to do that. Actually, also cultivating this awareness quality of knowing what's happening. And to some degree knowing that we know because it's awfully easy to just drift off into being caught up in a train of thought. So how can you, without adding any tension or tightness, just using the power of intention, just intend to stay connected and present. Aware of the feeling of your body sitting here. Aware of the overall field of sensation and experience. Just noticing if there's any pull to go off and think about something or a sort of sinking sensation of just wanting to go to sleep and ignore the whole thing. You can just notice those. And noticing doesn't mean that you then turn to fix it or try to change it. It just means that you are aware that this is what's happening right now. much more often than we think, just bringing a clear kind of neutral acknowledgement that right now it's like this is sufficient for things to evolve in the way they need to.
We'll sit in silence for a few more minutes. I might once in a while just ask you if you're aware. What are you aware of? What are you aware of? Can you find some ease in relation to it? you know that you're sitting here and feeling something about your bodily presence? Can it be okay as it is?
Are you aware of where your attention is? Just noticing. What am I aware of right now? What's my relationship to that? Can I bring some ease to it? Just keep it very simple. There's really nothing to figure out, just in the very immediate moment, probably maybe a breath, maybe your contact with your chair, maybe thinking, maybe hearing. happening at the sense doors that you can directly sense. Some kind of pattern of thinking keeps taking you away. Maybe you can sense what kind of thinking and what's behind that. Planning, worrying, remembering. And then see if you can just let that be known. You can always just return to staying with the sensations of breathing. Being right there with each in-breath and each out-breath. If there's nothing more strongly pulling you away. Appreciating ease of that.
Okay. Well, before I get into introducing the subject of right view, I forgot to say a little bit about business. If any of you are still feeling unsure about your status with a mentor or if you're enrolled properly in the program or not, come and see me at the break and we can talk about where, where we are with those things. Okay. No, it's okay. Well, maybe, yeah, it might be nice. Okay, so right view. Those of you who were here last week uh, might remember that I mentioned that it's a kind of a challenging one to start with. So I want to start a little bit um, unpacking what this means and why we start with it. So I mentioned last week that in all these factors, the meaning of the word right is like wise, uh, helpful, appropriate for the purpose of being free from suffering. Not right in the sense of correct or you know exactly what you should believe or something. So there's that word, and then there's view. So trying to understand what's meant by view in the in the path. The view it's not it's not like a a simple or an abstract collection of statements. You know, like this is true and that's true and this is what I believe. It's not like that. One one scholar says it's a charged interpretation of experience, which intensely shapes and affects thought, sensation, and action. Okay, so this is really a view of a, a, a way we are kind of stance in the whole world that very directly affects what we do. Views are produced by, and in turn, they produce mental conditioning. So kind of the sum total of everything that's happened to you in your life so far has created a bunch of views. We don't just have one view. We have views in different situations. And and it's not just your opinion, but it's kind of how you come into that whole situation, what you expect, what you habitually are afraid of, what you, you know, how you, what you even are able to perceive in that situation because of all the filtering that our minds create. So... It's like, another word for it sometimes is called right understanding. It's like where we're coming from. What is it that's motivating and guiding us moment to moment? So in general, the Dharma is encouraging us, the Buddhist teachings, I often call it the Dharma, is asking us to see, to begin to be able to see views as views. Another way to understand them that's often used is like lenses or glasses that we're wearing. And we just see the world through those glasses and we're not aware of it. And so what we're trying to encourage ourselves to do when we study this factor is to take off the glasses and look at them <laughs> and try to see what, what effect they're having on how we see the world and what the world looks like if we can put them aside for a second somehow. What else might we see? And we're examining to see not only the content of the view, if you can express that somehow, but especially the way that we're relating to it, the way that we're holding it. Are we, is it important to our identity? Who would we be without this view? And the most important question is, is it leading, is what it's doing to our minds leading to more suffering or less suffering? 
So then this brings up this word that's often translated as suffering. And I want to introduce you, you, many of you know this other Pali word, dukkha, which is the actual word. It's one of those words that's hard to translate. And suffering is at the kind of heavy end of what's referred to by dukkha. But it's also just a kind of dissatisfaction with what's going on, the sense that you're not good enough, it's not good enough, it's not quite all settled down with you somehow. One of our teachers translates it as stress, which works pretty well these days. We know what stress is. So something in between, you know, the worst thing that you can imagine and just kind of, eh, is this all there is to life? (laughs) Or something like that. That whole range of not feeling that you're completely clear on, on how to be with life in a way that's beautiful and peaceful and sustaining you. All that is dukkha. So when the Buddha was asked for a definition of dukkha, he said, friends, what is stress? I'm going to use the word stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved or the unwanted is stressful. Separation from the loved or from what we do want is stressful. Not getting what we want is stressful. Getting what we didn't want is stressful, right? So this is a pretty, this is a pretty broad range of uh, human experience that is dukkha. And this goes very deep and subtle. Most of us are carrying a lot of chronic tension from our whole lifetime of automatically kind of half suppressing our reactions to these kind of experiences. We may be kind of numb to it, you know, or we may be so used to a certain level of stress as we go about the pursuit of happiness, which is big in our culture. We don't even notice what that pursuit is, and we don't really let in the fact that we're always pursuing and never quite getting there. But as we meditate and work with the path factors, we start to experience deeper tastes of peace and happiness. One of my teachers would often compare it to being in a room where suddenly the refrigerator goes off. You know, oh, I didn't realize, or the lawn blower or something that's just you've been holding and reacting to all this time. Suddenly, oh, okay, I didn't even know this level of relaxation was possible. And so many times over you will experience that and you begin to get a little bit of a fine-tuned sense of what is meant by dukkha. So bringing these two ideas together, focusing on learning to work wisely with what is our attitude to the unavoidable ups and downs in life. I understand Gil spoke this morning about the eight worldly winds, which I'll mention again. Um, And then the importance of views in shaping our experience and how we relate to that. We can understand that one of the most common definitions of right view in the teachings is this is actually a set of views about how we relate to suffering. And those are known as the Four Noble Truths. So if, when you get a sort of thumbnail definition of right view, and there are quite a lot of them, and we'll talk about a couple of them today, one of them is through looking through the lens of what's called these Four Noble Truths. And I'm going to talk about that. Another one is learning to discern wholesome and unwholesome, and Liz will talk about that. And there are some others, but those are the two main ones that you'll find mentioned. So I'm going to look at the four, the four Noble Truths today as 
wise views or wise understandings. And then I, maybe we can compare them a little bit to what are our usual, more uh, contrasting, less wise views in relation to these four things. So when we say Four Noble Truths, that's kind of a grand title. It's understood different ways. Gill thinks it could mean the, the truths of the noble ones and all. It's the kind of way. But it's not a truth as something to blindly believe. It, this is not four things you have to believe if you're going to be a good Buddhist that you start with like that. It's, they're not scientific facts about the universe particularly, but they're really pragmatic, practical sense that we're talking about of lenses or perspectives that what you're invited to do is test them out, experiment with them, and investigate them. So let's consider the results of looking and thinking and acting from these perspectives and see which leads to more dukkha. So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. There is suffering. So what would be, in what ways do we not really let in this truth? You know, what, what kind of subtle views might we have in our lives that are not just, yep, there is suffering? You know? I think a lot of people, the first thing you think is, why me? You know, how did this happen? Why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. And it's very helpful sometimes to, I have to fix this. This, you know, the first thing is, how do I fix this? And how do I make sure this never happens again? Not that that's never useful, but the first thing is to recognize that, yeah, this is suffering. You know, these, all these hurricanes, all the damage from these hurricanes, it's going to be a long time before humans can just get themselves together and somehow restore normal life in all these places. There is suffering when something like weather happens. And there's weather in the minds of people that cause a lot of suffering. You know, so how... There's something very, very good about being able to really just recognize that this is a part of life and not take it personally. I was, uh, I came across a paragraph from a woman named Mary Pfeiffer who's written some books I like. She's a psychologist. And she was going through a long depression herself. And she said, I was reading about depression during this time and the more I read, the more damaged I felt. The more I felt damaged and unique as if I were a list of symptoms and and neuroses and so on. When I switched to Buddhist writing, I stopped feeling damaged immediately. I felt something much different. I felt human. I felt as if I was a member of a human race of seven billion people who suffered. And that I, like everyone else, to avoid suffering, would need, would need to learn some new skills. You know, so that's a very different view. I mean, I love psychology, and you can read about depression in a way from a point of view that doesn't have that effect on you if you're able to step back and help, if it helps you see it more objectively as a thing that's common, reading about it could be helpful. But there's reading about it in a way that, oh dear, you know, yes, there's something wrong with me. I'm uniquely unable to function somehow. So that's a, a working with the truth. It's so different when you realize that it's not just you. It's not something uniquely about you, but it's inherent in our ordinary shared humanity. Um, Yeah, so we turn toward it. This first noble truth is the invitation to take the view that it's appropriate to turn to, not deny, not run away from, not distract yourself 
but to turn to and acknowledge that this is suffering. There is suffering, and right now is perhaps an example of it. So the second noble truth is that suffering is caused by craving. There's a cause of suffering, and it's craving. This is a translation of the word that also means thirst. So I think the most important aspect of this view is that it's that turn inward. Because if you ask most people what's causing suffering, they're going to say the hurricane or, you know, some event externally in my life, something that happened is causing suffering. So, and of course that's a condition for our arising that then led to our reactivity and those two together are causing the experience of suffering. But it's much more fruitful to learn to work with our own reactivity than to try to always figure out, of course we want to work on what we assume to be the causes of worse events in the world, but that's an endless chore and it's like very fruitful to learn to work at your own relationship to what's happening. Um, Yeah, so Gil talked this morning about these worldly winds of pain and pleasure and gain and loss and approval and disapproval and fame and ill repute that are usually just these sort of yo-yo factors and the, the ones we don't like of those immediately cause us to react and, and not necessarily to look at those as more of just what's happening in the world and what are we bringing to it. So to check out this understanding we need to experiment a little bit with going against the stream of how we usually behave. There's a whole movement of uh, kind of the younger element in Buddhism that calls itself against the stream to sort of admit that we're not going the way that most people go with this. We're not looking outward to, as the first thing to necessarily affix blame, but we're looking at how we're relating to it. So the Buddha says, by and large, this world is in bondage to attachments, clingings, and biases. But one who can be said to have right view does not get involved with or cling to these attachments, clingings, fixations of awareness, biases, or obsessions, nor is he resolved on myself. So that points to how, this is a very deep investigation in your whole Buddhist practice of what is this idea of me and mine have to do with that kind of basic individual survival which is, you know, that's how we're individuals for a while, is through individual survival instinct. But that is ultimately not um, the only thing that you want to base your life on because it, it's not reliable. <laughs> and so adding, f- figuring out what is coming from this individual survival-based, me-against-the-world point of view and what's coming from something else. So when we're looking at the second noble truth, it's very interesting to try to understand what is craving. So we're not saying never want anything. You know, may everyone be happy. I would love that. May there be peace on earth. I'm thirsty. I'm going to go find some water. So ordinary things that you want or wishes. But when does that turn into craving? What does that turn into like you're staking your, all your well-being on I have to have this? At that moment is when suffering kind of begins. 
that's the experience that the Buddha is calling suffering is when you begin to grip and narrow your perspective and believe that absolutely has to be this way then there's really a lot of suffering and it limits your options for how you can act and it, it stakes too much on a particular outcome and all that is becomes suffering so really part of what we're learning is we're being sensitive to when that starts and in your mind what's the point where a good idea turns into this kind of slightly obsessive stressful driven a kind of drivenness toward have to have it or have to not have it have to make it stop can't live if this happens well you probably can you know a lot of stuff we think has to stop we can learn to live with somehow so um, what we're observing then in working with this second view is where are you slipping into craving and where are these little openings in the flow of your habit where you can get in there and start to notice it and bring some awareness to it before it becomes irresistible to act on it so why do we crave and cling and resist what does view have to do with that so a big part of the Buddhist teachings is that we're not really clearly seeing the costs and benefits we have views around what's worth it you know uh, it's worth it for me to just be running around crazy all day because I'm getting all these things done and or I'm gonna get all this you know status or I'm gonna get something you know maybe there's something in the way that you're going about it where you really haven't let in what it's costing you to go about I often find myself driving just gripping the steering wheel you know why and so that's just extra stress this is if I'm going to get there faster by doing that and I'm not so how can you see what you're adding in the way that you're doing something that's too much cost and then we also have unrealistic ideas about the permanence and the reliability of what we're trying to get you know if you just a simple example of uh, the urge to buy something because it looks good in a catalog you know you buy it and then you have it and you hang it up or put it in a drawer and eh you know it was not worth the any sense you had of urgency around needing to get this often just small examples that you can start to notice yourself about where are you where are you believing the story of craving and not noticing what is costing you okay. so the third noble truth is that there is an end to suffering and this is probably the hardest to see because even in small ways when suffering ends we're so relieved we're off to the next thing and we don't typically stop and appreciate that like that refrigerator went off you know something in me actually let go of that and what was that that actually changed and let go of that so the view here is that um, that this suffering is something that we're adding that's optional to experience and if we stop adding that then we will have a less suffering relationship with experience so there's a, an often repeated refrain in Buddhism about conditionality like when this happens that happens when this arises that arises and then when this if they're dependent in this way then when this ceases that will cease so we have requirements of air and water and if air and water cease we will cease right 
And so suffering actually depends on wanting something, believing that something has to be different than it is and that there's no possible way to pay attention to it in a way that we can suffer, that we can get through it without suffering. Or maybe we don't get through it. Maybe it is actually a fatal illness or something that we don't get through. But can we even look at getting through the end of life without suffering? You know, so the the orientation that suffering is actually what we're, what is our primary concern. Although we think it would be nice to live forever or we think it would be nice to have, you know, whatever it is we'd like to have. We actually think that because we think then I wouldn't suffer or then, then things would be okay. But if you really kind of highlight the role of suffering, okay, what I really want out of this is to be happy. And there are positive synonyms for not suffering also. Then you can put that in some perspective. And so we start to realize in small and larger ways this potential for inner independence and inner freedom that's independent of the circumstances of life. So it's very useful to catch small examples of the end of suffering. Like you could try outweighing a want, you want something, but instead of acting on it, you realize eventually that the want goes away by itself without you having got the thing. Wants don't last forever. But we usually don't notice, we're just on to wanting something else. But if you notice that that want went away, oh, it's gone. You know, I had a very transformative thing early in my life where I had a huge crush on someone that wasn't reciprocated and every time we'd get together it was, oh, it's kind of, oh. And then at some point that went away and it was, I was like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> I can go out and have coffee with this person and just enjoy it and I don't care. And this tremendous feeling, I mean, I cared, I still liked them, but the most tremendous feeling of, I'm free. <laughs> something, something let go and I'm free. And I brought that into my Buddhist practice so that this made sense to me from the beginning. Is oh, like that, like really let go, you know. And you can't always tell yourself to let go, but you can study it and study how much you're suffering from it and study the reality of it and eventually something learns and, and does let go. Yeah, so I've also, you know, some things change slowly over time. I used to be envious in a certain way of certain people and now I've noticed that that envy is changed to just a kind of gladness that there is happiness in the world. How great, some people are happy. <laughs> some, th- some people are able to make beautiful art and dance and things that I can't do and that's great. I'm glad there's that happiness and the mind can just go there instead of why not me? How come not me? You know, it's just a whole different feeling. And then there are these potentials for beautiful qualities of the heart. Confidence, strength, courage, goodwill, kindness, joy, compassion. All these are blocked by these unwise habits of clinging to our very narrow views of exactly what's supposed to happen. So when you can let go of that clinging, you can be surprised by life and by what it ways that beautiful feelings and appropriate feelings, you know, it's not like we're going to be happy when something like events of the last few weeks happen, but what's an appropriate response that isn't just jumping in to suffer unnecessarily? Something There's something right about compassion and courage, you know, Bruni going off to find her way across Puerto Rico with everything she could get in her various bags, you know, that 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 she can do that out of a kind of determination and she's going to do what she's going to do and it's not the same thing as suffering. 
It's doing something constructive. So, eventually there's a very great potential for the end of suffering. The potential for this radical dissolving of the whole point of view of this tightly bound in, self-referential, me versus the world, and what can I get out of it, and what's it going to do for me. That whole point of view can very gradually, that's the root of stress, can very gradually begin to dissolve through this practice. So the fourth noble truth is the truth of the path. That's where the path comes into the teaching sometimes is as the fourth noble truth. It's the path to the end of suffering. So what's the relationship between all these factors and everything that we've discussed so far? How we relate to these factors is very important in seeing how we can experience that non-arising of this extra that the Buddha called suffering. So we can look at what views, we're starting out looking at what views drive us, right? Then we can look at our intentions. What are your deepest intentions? Which ones are rooted in fear and defensiveness and mere survival or comfort? Which ones are point to deeper possibilities of love and generosity, equanimity? So looking at our intentions and what gets in the way of carrying out what intentions we have. What intentions kind of come in and hijack other intentions and how is that all working? What's the relationship between ethical behavior and suffering? Is there really a conflict between what's beneficial for me and what's beneficial for others? You know, we often talk, everybody talks about freedom a lot in different ways. And Gil used to talk about the difference between freedom to and freedom from. I've actually heard the same talk given using the reverse preposition. So you can make the point any number of ways, but we look at freedom to, you know, I'm going to go eat all the junk food I want. That's my idea of freedom. Or I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to just say the first thing that comes onto my mind, and that's my idea of freedom. But actually, you're being driven. When you, when you're, when you feel like that freedom is that bursting to just act out something, you're, what are you being driven from? What would it mean to be free from that drivenness? You know, so that you have a little space to consider is this thing I want to do actually wise, not just a rebellion against some kind of authority belief? You know, so there's a real transformation that comes from understanding why some of the world's most commonly held ideas of what's good for everybody, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, all those things are pretty commonly understood. Why is that actually good for you? And if you understand that that's what's good for you, then you can really own ethical behavior so that it's not a sense of behaving because somebody told you to, but because you really deeply understand the point (laughs) and how this is good for you and good for everyone. So right view is at the head of the path. It's orienting the whole practice. We're studying all these attitudes and we're becoming more sensitive to both the effect of suffering, and the possibility of not suffering. There's a thing I like very much that I want to read. There's both a positive and a negative example where the Buddha talks about it's like a seed. So if you plant a seed for sugar, the same water and, and sunlight is going to produce something sweet. And if you plant a seed for some bitter 
plant, then the same water and sunlight is going to produce bitterness. And so your view is like the seed that's in your mind that all your experience feeds and comes through. And whether it turns into something that's sweet or something that's bitter depends on the quality of that view. So the Buddha says, just as when a sugar cane seed, a rice grain, or a grape seed is placed in moist soil, whatever nutriment it takes from the soil and the water all conduces to its sweetness, tastiness, and unalloyed delectability. Why is that? Because the seed is auspicious. In the same way, when a person has right view and right release, right the whole path, right view through right concentration and so forth. Whatever bodily deeds he undertakes in line with that view, whatever verbal deeds, whatever mental deeds he undertakes in line with that view, whatever intentions, whatever vows, whatever determinations, whatever fabrications, all lead to what is agreeable, pleasing, charming, profitable, and easeful. Why is that? Because the view is auspicious. So that's why we begin with looking at right view. So, we are now going to have one of our breakout sessions. Is anybody here who wasn't here last week? Several of you. Okay. So, a feature of this program, kind of like the Dharma practice days that Gil does, is that we break out into small groups and we offer you a question to reflect on. And you go around in the group. And I'll just say again that it's optional. If this is very uncomfortable for you, you're welcome to take a walk and come back at uh, 2.15. And, but, you know, it's encourage, encourage you to give it a try. It's really a practice of respectful listening. We're looking ahead to right speech. So respectful listening, and it's really a chance for you to look in your own heart and see if you can just express something that feels appropriate to you to express. You're not trying to make the total grand statement about how this is, is for you or impress other people. It's really kind of talking to yourself in a way, but you're expressing something that you really feel out loud. And the other people are just listening. Let what that person says come into your heart. You're not responding. You're not trying to offer suggestions or meeting what they say with something that you're saying. So we'll just go around in a circle. And I think maybe for this one we'll just go around and each person can put in one idea, or one, and then the next person can put in another idea. And we'll go around and around a few times and maybe something somebody else says will trigger something in your mind and you can say it. Okay, is that clear enough? We've got 41 people, so it's perfect for breaking into groups of five. Eight okay. groups of five. Okay, eight groups of five. So groups of five. So if you would just find five people. If you were here, it's always nice to meet somebody new, so you might, uh, but whatever works. Eight groups of five. And you can also uh, take chairs out of the cabinets and meet in the outer hall as well. You can. Because there's a lot of us. You can. And I'll tell you the question when you get settled. If somebody doesn't have a group, there's two over there. There's two up there. There's three people here. That's all right. There's two up there. 
They're, they've got four now. Okay. Need, does somebody need a group? Please come up. And come up to the front if you need a group, and we'll point you to a opening. Yeah, so here comes somebody who could be in this group if you don't already have a group. He has a group. Okay. Okay. Okay, so, so I'm going to read the question, and then we'll have about a minute of silence for you all to think about the question for a minute, so that you get a chance to think what might be the first thing that you'd want to put in. And we won't ring any bells in the middle, you just go round and round putting in one thing and one the next person. Okay, the question is, what are some of the views you have about your meditation practice or your life? What are some of the views you have about your meditation practice and your life? Something you've already noticed in the way of a view that you have. Let's give it a minute for everybody to think about it, and then... Whoever wants to start. I'll ring a bell when we're ready to start. So, someone wants to start. If you're having trouble deciding, you can take the person closest to me. Or anyone can start. Fiona. And uh, would somebody be willing to share either something that was said or something about how this is, talking with people? Both of those are interesting topics. Microphones. Thank you. We do speak, we have some people who are following the program from afar and they like to feel like they were here. So let's talk into the mics. Um, I, I remarked on... Um, the universality of many of our themes um, and enoughness came up hmm. over and over. Personal enoughness, meditation practice enoughness, <laughs> life enoughness wasn't touched on directly but in, yeah. implicitly. Thank you. Um, I, I think a big part of Buddhism is looking at yourself, examining your own life. And one time I was in 
some group or something here, and somehow it came up like if you're older, like me, in some ways that helps you. You know, you feel like I have a limited amount of time. I got to get down. You know, <laughs> and also uh, that everything changes. If you've gone through some decades, you see that things change. So then, so I said this helps me. And then there was a younger guy there who asked the teacher, "Well, what do we do if we're younger? How do we notice that everything changes?" And then somehow I was talking again, and I said, "I think the thing to do is to be on the lookout for examples. Uh, you know, like at home, I, I use tea bags. So at the end of the, the the box, when it's empty, I fold up the box and put it in the um, recycling. So it, it's it's ending. You know, just. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that. I, actually, I, when you're talking today, Chris, I felt like I understood the four noble truths more clearly than before. Mm-hmm. But I think that the just noticing when are you getting driven? When are you getting really attached to this? Yeah. What's motivating you? That 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 kind of thing, like you're almost doing a microscope on yourself. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. yeah. Any other themes come up, or anything really struck you? A view you hadn't realized you had, maybe, or. Or inspirations from others. Mm-hmm. It's great um, you're sharing because it sometimes stimulates other people's thinking about this or their practice. Uh, so the observation I had was that um, one theme that came up in our group was around, um, no one used these words, by the way, but it's my reflection back, that meditation practice practice was like a self-help project and if you weren't making progress someone talked about progress earlier then it wasn't good enough Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Um, some of the repeated themes uh, we echoed enoughness uh, a lot of shoulds um, the idea of things being a particular way Uh, people talked about to-do lists and how meditation practice actually makes them either more efficient or more aware of the you know the flow of the to do list and mm-hmm. um, how sometimes the cost benefit analysis becomes a lot clearer when we meditate. Um, the idea of balance and having space, making space for our consciousness or awareness, mm-hmm. and then you know, the idea of the, um, we went through both skillful and unskillful views. Yeah, good. So I guess back, I mean, it's keeping with enoughness, um, and, I, and I feel like this, this is just something I arrived at during this group, is, is the idea of how much an, maybe some of it is enough. You know, I, I think I started with maybe I'm not meditating enough, and then I realized, well, I, at what point do you feel like, oh, this was enough? Like, this is, in, and why does it always have to be more and more and more? And then the idea of whatever amount it's been seems to have been very beneficial in some ways that I've seen. So maybe, um, so maybe to, that awareness for me was, uh, you know, maybe it has been enough. <laughs> yeah. The left, oops, the left side of the room is underrepresented. <laughs> <laughs> what happened over here? <laughs> 
How was it to talk with each other? How is this format? Okay. <laughs> My name is Augusta. And with the simple question that Chris offered, I can say that I really enjoyed talking with this group. The format was quite nice. It's nice that it was all female. And because of the structure of going around the circle and the clear instruction to share one thing, I think it creates a feeling of equity where everyone gets to contribute evenly, and mm -hmm. that's often not the case. So that was a real yeah. gift. Okay, well, no one has to do anything, so. <laughs> now, thank you all for sharing. That's, let's take a 10-minute break. We'll come back at 2.25. And if anybody feels confused about the program, the mentoring, any of that, come and see me. Okay. Oh, lovely. And she uh, lent me from the library here the uh, eight mine, this, this book here. Yeah, the, the so Bonte G. To the library. So there is a library copy there. Oh, thank you. So, you know, I don't know if everybody Thanks for that. How are you? Good. I don't have one. Ah. Yeah, she's the guru of all mentoring. <laughs> If you're interested in a group, I have a group in Mountain View. But yeah, there are some. Some people want individual mentors. Some people want group, small group. Sure. I find it very helpful when I'm just focusing on myself, meditation, when I'm by myself, I'm more at peace. When I'm out there, you know, interacting with people, especially at work, it feels like it's, it's difficult to kind of just be in work. You have to interact. Sure. You have to sometimes... My job requires to kind of judge other people's performances. Right. Yep. So it's like, I, it feels like as part of my job, I have to try to fix things and move things around and make decisions and be on my toes all along. And somehow it's like a conflict there with this kind of belief that I have. To, I want to be kind of an inwardly person and be at peace, be at peace with everybody else. But I'm drawn because I feel like I'm getting paid to do all of this, and if I don't do that, I feel like I'm not. That's right. Right. So this is a, a beautiful area for practice. Um, this, you know, eightfold path will give you an opportunity. Both, it's both on the meditation cushion. You know, when we have that opportunity to be quiet, but also then, what is it in the the working world? It's totally suitable in the working world, right? To be more interacting, to judge people's performance is necessary for people to do things in a way that gets results. So the fact that we're not as maybe as peaceful or calm is just something we can study on a bigger level at work. Like, okay, which interactions do my, do my views get in the way? Like, if I, for example, I'm very task-oriented at work, and for many years I noticed that if I was 
cleaning up after an event and other people were standing around chatting. I was like, why aren't they helping? So that was my view. My view was, oh, we're supposed to clean up, not do a lot of socializing. But, you know, you could say from the person who's getting acquainted with other people's point of view, why is she busy emptying the trash can? There's people here to be talked to. You know, so there's, it's just a study of at work, when do you feel stress or suffering? And then what's behind, you know, just allowing yourself to take that in, what's behind it. Other than just the, you know, deadlines and the normal kinds of stress at work, are there any ways where you find yourself sort of (laughs) reactive in ways that you don't want? And you can start with any level of awareness, like anything at work. Some of those values is not just my own lenses. It's something that the company or the place you work for, they give it to you. Right? That's right. It's about performance. This project has to be delivered by so and so This is the job of this so and so group of people. So then when you see that that is not happening, then somebody like me tries to fix it, which it's basically my job. It's appropriate. Yeah. So as a result, sometimes I feel like kind of myself yeah, so talking that behind people because I feel like their performances are questionable and that internally I just don't feel good about it because I feel like I'm not judging them right. I mean I pray that I hope I'm not making a mistake or I'm not like wrong about this point of view but at the same time it's a, it's a job. I mean, it's something That's right. So you have this beautiful area to look at which is you know the pain is coming a little bit to your heart and there is a difference between judgmental and discerning. So discerning is, you know, we're coming to a stop sign and another car is pulling up at the, the four-way stop at the same time. Discerning is, did they go there before me and so they should proceed before me? Or uh, do I go first? Judgment would be, oh, that turkey, they're in a hurry. And I, it's my turn first because, you know, I'm here. So... Um, the same thing at work. So you might be reporting to your uh, team or your supervisor, I'm noticing that so-and-so is um, consistently late to work. You know, they're always 15 or 20 minutes late, and it's interfering with team performance because we were late then with this thing. Yeah, yes, because that's discerning. That's like, it's a fact that that person is late. Now, there's lots of gray area there, right? So is it okay in our workplace for people to be late or not? That's discerning. A judgmental thing would be they're lazy. That person's lazy. They're always 15 minutes late. Now, for all we know, they have maybe an elderly sick parent at home or a sick kid, and that's why they're late. And maybe our workplace makes accommodations for that and we would feel differently. And, you know, we could be judgmental in the direction of they're lazy or... Well, you know, they're just, we, we, nothing matters. That would also be a view that might be harmful, right? Nothing matters. It's okay. Anybody can come anytime. But your employer might not be very happy with that. So, yeah. Like, for example, when I say something, it's my observation of it. So I basically speak the truth and try not to, like, not to speak anything but the truth. But that is my truth, you know? That's right. We can say, here's my observation. And then you know that other people, if they disagree with you, let's say on a project, they can say, well, thank you, but, or they could just say, I I disagree. I think this project, what we need is this. 
you know, but still it's not, it's really not the kind of harmful view unless it feels like, wow, I'm really creating other people's suffering. Not just workplace performance issues, but like I'm being mean. Like if, if. So this is really important to differentiate between suffering you're causing and suffering that's coming up in them. So let's say you're reporting um, this person is not meeting the job performance. They, I see that they're making a lot of mistakes. You, they may suffer about that, but that's not... You're conforming to what is required in your workplace. They have an option of going, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll work harder. Or, that's ridiculous, I'm great. Or, oh, I can never win. That is their suffering, not caused by you, because you're not doing anything uh, directly harmful. You're just sticking to the facts of the work. Now, if you trash talk that person, if you said they're lazy, they're stupid, they're, you know, then you would be creating harm, you know, and if they were mad at you, maybe you participated in that suffering. So this area invites us to really look at what's actually harmful and then not to take responsibility for the, res the suffering that other people bring up in themselves, but to take responsibility for when we were an active participant. It is, and, and we all get to explore this again and again, so it's not so black and white. And it's good that you're even reflecting in this, you know, in the workplace. What, when does it feel n not good and it's because of a way that I did something harmful? And when does it just not feel good because life has these struggles where some people are upset and some people are happy? And <laughs> Thank you. I'm just doing a warning bell. <laughs> did I lose somebody in my group? You did. Tina. Tina, okay. Tina. She was going to come up and say hi, but she has a work opportunity Saturday mornings. But there are other people, so I Okay, that's fine. I wonder if they hear us outside. Right, coming back, please. <laughs> From uh, some of the questions that have already been asked, 
maybe you can start to appreciate that this is not a matter of absolutes. It's a matter of exploring what's happening in your own life, in your own heart. And sometimes there's a lot of gray area where you get to, to sense into um, what is stressful or what is um, dissatisfying or what is painful. And to see, you know, how, what's my relationship with this? Am I causing this or is this, so is it internal or external? This is, there's a reason this is called the gradual path because there's plenty in here to take from, we can go from the broadest levels down to more and more and more subtle levels as we practice. You know, during the break we were comparing notes about ways we still are working with this where our suffering is coming from. So, um, so I'd like to share a little bit with you this afternoon about another way in which right view can be approached. And part of right view is um, that we need to get started on this Eightfold Path includes our awareness that actions have consequences. That's what karma or kama in the Pali language is about. Actions have consequences. Now you have to kind of clear off cultural ideas about karma and just focus on the fact that in Pali, kama means action. That's it. Um, so whether we're aware of it or not, something arises internally and one could say in some level we will something and then we put it into motion either in mental attitudes, in speech, and that could be internal speech or external speech, or in bodily actions. So why would it be important that actions have consequences? I mean, like, you might be sitting there going, duh, of course, <laughs> I knew that. But it's important because we have this opportunity through our Dharma practice to begin to open up a little space for choice. So maybe when you first started your meditation practice, you noticed how your mind was jumping all around and that you had a lot of reactivity. And maybe, of course, maybe you still do, where something happens and bam, you're, you just do something else immediately. Um, that reactivity increasingly as you continue your meditation practice you start to be able to notice that. You start to be able to notice, for example, when you're being affected by the desire for more of something or the, this craving or the craving for something to go away or stop or even when you can start to notice when you're affected by confusion. Like, I don't really know what's going on. I'm not really sure about this. Constantly feeling torn. Um, so first meditation practice starts to make you just aware of that and then over time there might be a little bit of an opportunity to you know maybe you're aware of it after something has happened oh there I was reacting out of not wanting something again <laughs> I wanted it to go away um, I'd like to start to change my relationship with that. So you might notice after, or you might start to notice during something, oh, here I am, caught in greed again. I think, you know, I'm coming home from a day of work and I think it's going to relax me to watch TV. And I'd like to, or surf on the internet, oh, I'd like to just look at that other website. Oh, and that one. So, oh, here I am in the middle of it and there's greed and it's going to make me very tired. 
tomorrow to be staying up doing this. Um, and eventually we can start to notice, and w when those awarenesses come up, that we've done something or that we're in the middle of doing something that is a form of stress or suffering, then that space starts to open up for, huh, maybe I don't want to do it this way anymore. Maybe I want to leave the television off and the computer off when I come home from work. Or we can notice, we, with even deeper practice, we start to notice before, right before something that we're habitually engaging in that creates stress for us, it will happen that you have that moment where you're about to go down that road and your mind says, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that again for the 10 millionth time because I know that at the end of that, I will not feel good <laughs> or it will not be good for others. So, you know, your child for the 10 millionth time does something that is pushes your buttons and you're just about to yell. You're like, let me take a breath first. <coughs> it pushes my buttons, but yelling is really not going to produce a result that I want, so I think I'll take a different tack this time. So um, right view of our role in actions and consequences is, is useful. And it's offered by Bhikkhu Bodhi in the Noble Eightfold Path book um, in this way from the words of the Buddha. Beings are owners of their actions, the heirs, H-E-I-R-S, heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be heirs. So we inherit the results of what we do in this very lifetime, in this very moment. Um, we get to experience the results of what we just did, said, thought, felt like. Um, and that responsibility to what happens inside us, with us, often with others, or with the planet or society around us, um, is a responsibility that's actually good news. Um, it means we're not predestined to suffer. So sometimes you'll hear somebody incorrectly say of Buddhism, it's the idea that life is suffering. No, that's actually not what the Buddha said. He did not say life is suffering. He said there is suffering. So we're not predestined to live lives full of suffering. We can experience it, and this is why we're here. We're tuning into it so that we can eventually follow the path and release ourselves from it piece by piece. Um, but it's not the sum total of human experience to be suffering. So we have the possibility in this path to notice the cause, as Chris described so well, and the way to end suffering. And it's through this practice of the Eightfold Path. So this right view, understanding actions and consequences, is a way to start ourselves down that path. And it's a way to explore, okay, I just did that. What was the result for me? Or, wow, I'm sitting here in um, judging my meditation practice. Do I really want to keep doing that? 
Um, so comma, or the actions we take and from which we experience these consequences, includes our thoughts, plans, ideas, mental states, what we say to ourselves and to other people, and what we do with our bodies. So right now, just take a minute of silent reflection about that and think of what are some current examples in your life of actions you've taken and consequences you're now experiencing as a result. Just take a minute. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. And I want to invite, if two or three people are willing to share in a sentence or two, an action and a consequence that you're experiencing or that has happened. I'll share one to get us started. Um, when I was on Gil's two-week retreat recently, I had an idea in mind that I had to exercise a certain amount. So I was going to climb the stairs, X number of days, X number of minutes, and I was going to walk around the perimeter path. And I got behind in my schedule. So one Friday night, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to do the hiking path, and I'm going to do it six times really fast. I'm going to kind of run part of it. I'm going to make up for lost time. And the next day, my knees had advanced to the, perhaps the next stage of arthritis, and I couldn't sit. I can't sit now on the cushion. I'm like, okay, concept, action, consequence. Bam. <laughs> Suffering. <laughs> so, anybody have any examples? Yeah, I'm going to pass the mic so our listeners can hear. And you don't have to say your name. No name. No name, yeah. <laughs> so, today I was walking with my husband. He has to take something to the post office. And I was talking about something, and then I said a bad word. And then he said, "If you're going to be saying bad word, I'm not. I'm not going to walk with uh, uh, you. You better be at home." And I said, "I didn't say anything. I just stopped and went back, do my path around. You know, he has done that so many times. I prefer that he can correct me. I like his correcting me, but more softly <laughs> than like I slap. I don't like that. So uh, I didn't suffer." I walk and have fun and walk around the farmer's market and I didn't feel guilty at all. <laughs> Mine is along the same lines. I'm not married, but <laughs> the person that I'm in a relationship with, I realized that 
Every time I'm trying to fix him on something, correct some of his actions, it kind of blows up and turns into some sort of argument that I'm hoping that I have never gone there. So I, I guess it has to do with all this fixing and not accepting things and craving for, so, or for something more, I guess, something to be slightly different that causes some kind of a suffering for me and perhaps even for him. Perhaps there are better ways of doing it. I'm here to learn. Great. Thank you. Those were two really good examples. Um, so, a useful way to dial into our practice of right view with respect to actions and consequences is just that, to tune into what feels wholesome and what feels unwholesome. Now, there are other words we can use for those two words. We could use helpful and unhelpful, healthy or unhealthy, skillful or unskillful, wise or unwise. So whatever resonates with you. But this idea that maybe we can feel what is like, okay, that was beneficial, that was wholesome, that feels good, versus, ah, that was definitely not skillful. That hurts. Um, when it's unwholesome, it may be that it's unethical. We may realize, oh, it just it does not meet my sense of values or ethics. It might be downright immoral. Um, or it could just hinder our spiritual development. So an example of something that's unwholesome that you might not think would be unwholesome is working too hard at this practice. Penny, you were talking about that a little bit. You know, if we're so pushing ourselves and so stressing ourselves out about, oh, my practice is never enough. I, you know, I'm not going to be a good enough practitioner until I'm sitting all day like a monk. Then it's going to be enough. That pressure, I mean, I think Gil, the way Gil puts it is, um, okay, then it's going to take you twice as long to reach enlightenment if you do that. So that's an example of something you might at first think was wholesome, but turns out to be unwholesome, and it hinders your spiritual development to put that kind of pressure on yourself. All the way from your body just going ouch from all the tension to um, your mind suffering more than it needs to. Um, now, the Buddha offers uh, us a list of ten unwholesome actions. And one thing you'll notice as you go through this eightfold path is that every path factor starts with a study of wrong, wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action. The reason for this is actually profound, and it's an encouragement for us to take our time and really, really take years, take however long to explore this. Because you can't be both sick and well at the same time. At first, you have to notice what the unease, disease is that's keeping you caught in dissatisfaction and suffering. And then you can start to practice the, you start to notice that. That leads to maybe letting go of that and practicing the absence of it. And then it leads to practicing positive virtues. So this list of wrong action is the way to pave the way towards right action. Um, and it's also part of wise view. This is an example of how the path is in, interwoven. We're going to be studying these again in depth when we get to right action. But as a preliminary understanding, we need to at least know ways bodily actions could be unwholesome. So there are three ways. Um, destroying life, 
Now, people in this room probably don't go around killing a lot, you know? Um, so what, what would that mean for us? And this is a whole exploration. Again, these aren't commandments. They're invitations to look at ways that you suffer in your life. So there might be examples where we participate in destroying life that's, you know, not, we're not directly killing something, but it's an area of reflection for us. Where do we participate in the destruction of life? Taking what is not given. Again, I don't think many people here in the room are thieves or robbers. But um, what's an everyday example of, you know, that might be common of taking what is not given? Does anybody have one? Short one? Yeah, Christine. Thank you. A short one. If one of my grown children comes to my clean kitchen and leaves it dirty, they have taken something from me that was not given. All right. Yeah, thank you. Another example that's really common is interrupting someone when they're speaking. They, you know, we're taking their airtime. Um, wrong the third bodily action that's unwholesome is wrong conduct in respect to sense pleasures. No one here has ever done that, right? <laughs> you know, our world is full of sense pleasures. So chances are, you know, we've done things like, huh, I don't know, thinking that it'd be fun to, to binge watch a, you know, a series of television shows and then um, it takes a while to dial into the fact that, oh, I'm actually more tense and exhausted after watching that than I was before that. Um, or, you know, eating or drinking uh, something that doesn't agree with you, even though, because it's so tasty, you know, it's so tasty. Um, so it can be benign like that or it can be very serious. I mean, we can be caught in the grip of an addiction and we do not know how to find our way out. Um, there are a lot of substances that just latch right into the human um, biochemistry, and they're very, there's a lot of suffering and pain that come from those. So, you know, in what ways are we caught in wrong con conduct with respect to sense pleasures? Then there are four verbal actions that can create suffering for ourselves and others. False speech. So maybe you don't go around lying, or maybe you do sometimes say the convenient white lie, but is that really helping you? Or what, what about if you leave people with a false impression by not speaking up at a certain time? Or how about exaggeration? Or humor? You know, sometimes we exaggerate for humor, but, you know, how is that really? Um, how about speculation spoken as if it were the truth? You know, we can find ourselves doing that. Slanderous speech, that's a second area. Um, so have you ever done this when you're watching the news and you vehemently disagree with what's being said? Now, the you might think it internally. Um, oh, that person is just completely benighted. Or you might say it out loud. Slander speech. Does that advance the understanding of 
human beings, you know, between human beings, if you think that way. If you're driving along and someone does something dangerous on the highway and you think, that jerk, does that really, you know, is that conducive to more stress or less stress? Harsh speech. When you are at your most difficult moments, what is your, what are the quiet things you're saying to yourself in your own head? Or what happens when you speak harshly to someone in your family, like you snap at them or something? So that's a cause of suffering that we can explore. Uh, fourth one is idle chatter. So does anyone here, that's one's like, what the heck is idle chatter? And why would that cause, you know, we, we love to chat with each other and just grease the wheels of social interaction. But does anyone here have an example of a time that gossip or a joke really ended up hurting you or someone else? Could you say a little bit more about that? Somebody said Princess oh, Diana? Yeah. Princess Diana, she died. Uh, so I think all of those rag magazines where people are um, so interested in the lives of certain people just because they happen to be famous to the point that these people who happen to be famous can't have a life is um, really unhealthy to the point that it led to the death of Princess Diana. Great point. You know, our, our appetite for gossip and for wanting to know things that maybe really we don't need to know um, contributed to, uh, contributes daily to a lot of suffering and contributed to her death. Now, there are also three mental actions that are unwholesome. One is covetousness. When you want something that someone else has, and this can be like, it can be about meditation practice. You can be covetous of someone else's meditation achievements, or you could be covetous of anything, you know, our wanting, what, what that wanting brings about. So, you know, thinking about that. Ill will. You know, when you disagree with someone's politics or the way they drive their car, or something they did. Have you ever felt negativity towards them or even spoken negativity towards them? And how might that cause suffering or stress? And then finally, wrong view. So for example, wrong view when we think that some action we're taking is not really causing suffering, and it actually is. Sometimes this one takes a while to realize. We have a habit, it's a habit we love, we think it's cool, we think it's fine, and it takes us a while to kind of realize, oops, this is actually contributing to my stress or somebody else's stress. So what can be very useful is to notice when something we've thought, said, or done results in a physical sensation that tells us it wasn't wholesome. So can anybody here share one example of a physical sensation they've gotten when they recognized that something actually wasn't wholesome for them, like they sensed it in the body. I feel it in my gut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a reason our vocabulary includes the phrase gut feeling. 
sometimes we know in our gut or we know in our belly that something is just not right. Um, so tuning into your body can actually be a really great way to help yourself notice what's wholesome and unwholesome. Guts, gut feelings, um, you know, that, that unease that can come up. Or even good feelings, like, you know, when you leave a meditation session and you actually feel a sense of calm or peacefulness, or you can watch your mind, kind of like the shaken jar of glitter, gradually settle down over the course of a meditation session. That's a sense of wholesomeness in the body. Um, another way to notice is whether when a resultant feeling or emotion tells us something's unwholesome or unhelpful. Um, and by the way, I'll give you the challenge. Have you ever felt a pleasant emotion that tells you something is not wholesome for you? A pleasant emotion that tells you something is unwholesome. I'll share an example. On the retreat that I mentioned I was just on, I was given the delightful task of doing the floral arrangements. That was one of my jobs. And I found myself getting so excited about floral arrangements that I was thinking about it too much. And I'm like, okay, back to the retreat. <laughs> that was an example of a pleasant emotion of excitement that wasn't exactly wholesome for the purpose I had in mind, which was focusing during my retreat. Um, then finally, another way to notice what's wholesome or unwholesome um, in terms of the actions we take or th things we think or say is mental state, a mental state that makes you aware that what you just engaged in was either unwholesome or wholesome or what you're about to do. So I've had the one where it's like noticing something and it really isn't wholesome and bam, it turns out not to be wholesome. So on another retreat, I was serving as the cook and I was to dice carrots. And I didn't, I was, this is impatience, a mental state that caused me suffering. I didn't want to cut the carrots in rounds and then dice the rounds. I was too lazy to think of flipping over every carrot round and dicing it. So I chopped the ends off the carrot and set the carrot on its end and I'm like, I'm going to slice down this way. And, oh, this might not be safe. And just then cut into my finger. So as I was doing it, I was like, this might not be safe. Ah. So that's an example of a mental state like that. Don't do this is a warning and was a warning <laughs> that it was not a good thing to be doing. Um, so as we go through this study of the Eightfold Path, you'll notice this, you know, first looking at what's unwholesome in your life and seeing it through bodily sensations, the gut, seeing it through feelings, the uneasy emotion, the distress or the happiness, calm, seeing it through the mental state that comes up, maybe a thought that pops into your head or a, a mood <coughs> that's with you. Um, then another useful way to tune into this idea of action consequence or the right view, starting with 
what's the wrong view, Chris and I have both alluded to a lot today. And that is what are called the three unwholesome brutes. So one way you can notice what's wholesome and unwholesome is, is you know, this broad area of is craving present. Is craving present in the form of greed for something, more of something, something to continue? I've got to have it this way. The second unwholesome root, aversion. I don't want this. This has got to end. If I just endure this sitting, I can get up and my knee will stop hurting when the bell rings. Aversion. And the third, delusion. Being confused, not knowing what's going on. I mean, this is the hardest one to spot. But we can find ourselves caught in delusion. Like, I've suffered this again and again over the years when I had something interesting happen during a sitting or a retreat, and I thought, that's it! I finally arrived! And turns out, no. <laughs> it, well, it was actually a false path. Um, so practiced as positive virtues, um, we're... Wrong intention would be fueled by greed, aversion, or delusion. So again, the, inner, the Eightfold Path is interwoven. We'll get to studying right intention. First, we've got to study these wrong intentions of greed, aversion, and delusion. Then we can study non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, when they're absent in us. And finally, get to the positive virtues of generosity, compassion, renunciation. So... The consequences of our comma, you know, our actions that have consequences, might show up right away, or they might not even manifest in this lifetime. So you don't have to believe in multiple lives or multiple lifetimes in order to see this. If you think about um, the succession of lifetimes that will follow yours, there are things that we can set in motion that will harm life on the planet after we're gone. We're the heirs. We've inherited other people's comma in the form of global relationships, wars, environmental damage that's already been done. So this idea of comma, it's not just, you know, that if I do the right thing in this moment, in the next moment, I'm going to feel good. It has really, this is where we're really interwoven with other beings and human beings on this planet, other life. Our actions have results even if they're just a drop in the pond. Um, so the, I hope that this is beneficial to you, this study of what's wholesome and unwholesome in, and your comma, the actions that have consequences as we go through this Eightfold Path program. So again, we're going to give you a little opportunity to break out into groups. Chris, I need this schedule to do this one. So this time, maybe pick four people that you have not met yet. Um, so first, get into groups of five again. Find a spot in the room with four other people you don't know, maybe. Okay, thank you. If you happen to know everybody in this room and you're meeting with people you already know, that's okay. Raise your hand if your group still needs people. Just put up the number of fingers of people you still need. Five. 
All right, maybe we've lost some folks. So go ahead and have a seat with your four folks and let's... Oh, there you go. Good. That's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. We're okay. You know, wherever you've landed, that's good. If it's three, if it's four, if it's five, that's fine. You can meet with people. You know, we can't get this exact with everybody new, so just settle where you are. It's fine. Are you finding something, Augusta? Forest is... Forest? Okay. All right, so um, let's just take a moment of silence first. Um, the question you're going to reflect on that you may want to reflect on in your moment of silence is what, we'll do the same format as before, by the way, of going around one comment at a time and the practice of listening to one another and not commenting on each other, just sharing when it's your turn, letting it pass to the next person and so on around the group multiple times. So in our moment of reflection, reflect on what can support you in daily life to notice the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome. So I'll ring the bell in one minute. So just take that time to reflect. What can support you in your daily life to notice the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome? And why don't you start with the person with the shortest hair? So wrapping it up and maybe thanking your group members. And it's okay to stay where you are. Because again, it would be great if you would be willing to share uh, some, some inspiration that you got from the group or some little piece of wisdom that you're going to be walking away with and sharing that with the people who are uh, both in this room and also <coughs> being, uh, listening to our recording. So what came up for you about that that might be supportive in noticing wholesome and unwholesome in your daily life? No name. I I thought about when the the group was talking about something that it um, there's always a new day to do it right. So forgive yourself. Start clean. Don't keep pushing the air on your 
your leg again and again. It's going to be bleeding. You drop the arrow. Forgive yourself and start now. Mm-hmm. That's a really nice encouragement. Since this practice takes patience. Forgive. She wanted to say forgive, not forget. of things came up for me because I realized when I do the meditation it helps me to be in touch more with my inner voice that always gives me the right answers I know when I did something wrong the answers are within us I think that meditation brings us to such a peaceful kind of understanding and listening to our inner voice to make sure that we are not repeating the past mistakes Another thing that came up more on a practical side, I noticed that I've been like binging quite a lot in front of TV late at night, and it came up in our group that it's a form of craving. It is a form of like indulging, and I've been like so much trying to lose the last, you know, five or ten pounds and hasn't been happening, and maybe that is the key. I need to control that craving. Thank you. I think more and more as our group spoke, I realized that it lies in the details and that sometimes in the spiritual path, we, we rest on kind of large sweeping narratives of generally I'm okay or generally, you know, we, we let ourselves off the hook. And in our group, we really went down into the minutest details of our actions. And they were very daily, minute to minute recollections uh, of analy- analyzing the cost and the benefit of every little thing and really taking stock that way rather than like an annual stock. It was like a minute-by-minute stock. And then you, it just makes you so honest with yourself about what's happening. So it's in the details. Uh, we talked about... Um slowing down, uh, just <clears throat> kind of taking time to uh, just sort of slow down so that we can, um, you know, reflect on, on what we're doing. So just that concept of, of slowing down. Yeah. Um, if I were to sum up our group in two words, I would say time and forgiveness so it's a common theme I'm hearing out there too just time and forgiveness oh um press until the green light comes on right there yeah there you go uh, something we talked about in our group um, was intention um, first like noticing the intention behind the action and also um finding ways to cultivate intentions that are um, supportive. So for example, one, one thing that came up in our group was maybe reading a book or a passage um, that sort of gets you thinking about what kinds of intentions you want to have in your day or in your life um, and just having that support um, what you're doing.
wonderful. Um, so if you want to go back to your seat now, we're going to have some time for Q&A. So this is a time to ask anything about if you've done any of the reading so far or if you have run into anything, anything's been said today so far that isn't clear to you or anything that you might have, have in mind. A question arose for me in our first practice group. <clears throat> Thinking about and naming all of us speaking different views It came into my mind that some of the views we were speaking were maybe unwholesome views or wrong views. And of course, they were conditioned by various experiences. Mm -hmm. And then some of the views that we were spoken seemed to be coming from insights or direct experience of things that led to wholesome experience. And I found myself questioning, oh, are those views right views, and then I heard so much the language of right and wrong, and I, I'm very clear that sama is not right in the cor correct mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sense. And I like um, Ajahn Amaro's, one of the ways he talks about it is upright, like you're riding a ship. Mm -hmm. and so that's the way that mm -hmm. I kind of hold that, and then, mm -hmm. so I put that question out to the two of you. Yeah are those views that arise that feel wholesome based on insight and direct experience, are they in the category of right view or are we limiting right view to a specific list offered by Shakyamuni? Yeah, what, what it occurs to me to say is that and there's kind of two levels of looking at view, I think I said. One of them is the content of the view and one of them is how you're holding the view. And the most important thing is what is that view conditioning in you? What intentions come out of when you're under the influence of that view? What intentions come out of from your mind and heart? So that's really the way to look at it. And if it's a view that's come out of in some kind of insight or some kind of understanding that leads to wholesome intentions and behavior, then sure, it's a, it's a, it's a healthy view. It's also important to notice that it is a view and stay open to further information. <laughs> you know, it might be that you, like Liz alluded to sometimes in meditation where we have a, right. a beautiful experience and the view out of that might be, now I'm fully enlightened, you know, and that might lead to lots of joy, but it might also be a kind of a setup for what happened or next time you experience something else, you know. So it's just to see it as a view and watch what it leads to. 
And what I hear directly in the question that arose about right is that recognizing that in this moment it's presenting as a wholesome view. Yeah. 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 And definitely you can substitute upright or, you know, whatever synonym helps you understand is this liberative or is this conducing to further suffering? <coughs> and then when, it, when you think it's liberative, liberative or frees you from suffering, hang out with it for a while and see if that's really so. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite clear about this. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Thank you. It may still change, but it's been my experience for many years. Yeah. There's one up here. As I've done the reflections uh, about beliefs, I find that as a mother of young children, one of the strongest cravings or clingings or tightenings that's happening is around the idea of my children being safe and being alive. So it's confusing to me if this is a craving or it's just a natural biological sense of goodwill. But it does cause me suffering because it fuels fear. Right. and delusion. Right. Um, That's the very interesting boundary that we're looking at, is wanting your children to be safe so you wouldn't take any actions that endanger them intentionally and you would take actions that protect them intentionally. But what's the extra... What's the extra in your mind that's making it a anxiety, fearful? Is that helping them actually? No. So just teasing apart the goodwill and the... That's right at the point of what the Buddha means by suffering. You know, that's the part we can work on, is that extra bit. And what is that? So that's a great question for investigation. Did uh, you just have... continuing off that last thought, um, so I have a grown-up son, and that doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, and so there's an added component that it, not just that the fears is is a pretty unwholesome thing for me to feel when I worry about his safety, but there's also uh, whatever action comes out of that fear or craving for his safety, and what impact that has on his development or on his life, if development isn't the right word, on yeah. his life at all to impart that fear. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's an ongoing yeah. human. These are really rich questions to explore. It's very interesting because Gil just ended his talk this morning on this saying this very thing about parenting. And I asked Andrea the very, I said, is this letting go, like of craving for your child's safety, is, is that in, compatible with the path? Be, because, I mean... You begin, how do you reconcile that? Because you have to let go. I, and she said, it is absolutely compatible. It's the best thing you can give to your children. And um, Gil said this morning, he said, demonstrating a lack of anxiety around all the issues because you know there is a way so that your children don't pick up that the world is a dangerous place. Because if you are clinging to their even a safety issue and so on so strongly, you're passing along the... the it's, letting go is actually the best thing you can yeah. give your children. Yeah. 
I'm still thinking about one thing that Trishla mentioned. Uh, natural and being on the path to liberation are not necessarily always aligned. Uh, all of our behavior is natural. Everything that happens is natural. It's unfolding due to lawful conditions of the world. But how to learn to, you know, um, navigate in that space in a wholesome way within this broad scope of naturalness. <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of appreciating from what's been said so far and what's been asked that um, in any arena of our life, but parenting, it particularly strikes me. Parenting, work, there's ton of, tons of gray area. And that's where this is not a set of commandments. It's an exploration. Where am I being helpful and where am I... Uh, you know, starting to participate in something that just feels like sticky and uh, suffering or dissatisfaction. And it, it changes all the time. If your child is one day older, it's probably moved. The target has moved already, right? Or it seems that way sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right, right view. You know, sometimes in the years of past that I've been doing this, people will come to me and say, now what's here's a particular situation and what's, what's the right view with respect to that situation? And that's a little too exact, you know. The Buddha is not putting out, like Liz just said, a, a set of rules for how to think about each situation. You're not going to open up the suttas and find the answer to what to say to your boss because when they said something to you. So it's much more like this viewpoint of just learning to sense within yourself what's you know, what's going to be onward leading in this situation and what's just reactive and what might feel good to say something nasty back but you know that's not going to, you know, carry you forward. So just to be clear, right view is not a list of things to think <laughs> or handy answers for all situations. I'm also appreciating the point that the Four Noble Truths are a view you know, we're, we're using the raft to cross the stream of suffering. So we're using helpful views as well mm -hmm. and studying where our views are not helpful. Mm -hmm. Right. Anything else? This is a hard one to get your... It's a funny one to start with. It's still, it's very subtle and it's a long study. And uh, at the end of the year, well, we should, I wish we, we kind of do it during the retreat. We'll probably come back to talk about what we've learned about this one in the course of the whole year. Yeah, I, I think a good, having sat through innumerable talks about the Four Noble Truths and it, even trying to give some and going, wow, this topic is really actually quite complex. Remember that we're setting off in our study this year of the path, we're setting off with this, and we just have to have enough of it, enough understanding that actions have consequences, enough understanding that suffering arises, there must be a cause from, from it, there can be an end to it, and the Eightfold Path is helpful. You know, just getting enough of that, and this month, the four, you know, in, in the four weeks, there'll be emails that give you some practices that help you study this on this first sort of level. Now some of you are going through this path, you know, this eightfold study for, you know, this is not your first uh, round through it. 
and you can study it on a deeper and deeper level. And eventually it leads to the embodied lived experience where you are the eightfold path in the flesh. You're, you're there in the body. And, you know, that's the Buddha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Also, I just want to say, I don't, I think of suffering as a great teacher, you know, that's what it's there. It's like uh, the guardrails on life, you know, when you start going off in the wrong direction, it hurts, and that's a message for you to look at. So it's not something that we're, that's the enemy, it's a teacher that you can get to know and try to understand what, what that suffering is coming from, what it's telling you. I really appreciate the comment that was made that it's in the details because, you know, the, the temptation is sometimes to be a so-called checklist Buddhist, like, oh, yeah, I got that one, got that down. I know, I know this, I know this. But if you keep looking more and more deeply, there's more to find. So just allowing yourself to discover that next layer and that next layer and that next layer, um, there's plenty for all of us, no matter how many times you've been through this, there's more. Well, let's take a, let's just sit for a minute just to let our energy settle. Wishing all of you an interesting and fruitful month exploring this topic and sending just a little more good wishes to our friend Bruni and her journey in Puerto Rico and wishing that everyone who's been affected by these difficult events of the last couple months, may they be well. May we all be at ease. May we all be free from suffering.